Chapter three and four of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter three. At three a.m. Mr. Reginald Dimmock proved himself, despite his extreme youth, to be a man of the world and of experiences, and a practised talker. Conversation between him and Nella Rexall seemed never to flag. They chattered about St. Petersburg, and the eyes on the Neva, and the tenor at the opera who had been exiled to Siberia, and the quality of Russian tea, and the sweetness of Russian champagne, and various other aspects of Muscovite existence. Russia exhausted, Nella lightly outlined her own doings since she had met the young man in the Tsar's capital, and this recital brought the topic round to London, where it stayed till the final piece of steak was eaten. Theodore Rexall noticed that Mr. Dimmock gave very meagre information about his own movements, either past or future. He regarded the youth as a typical hanger-on of courts, and wondered how he had obtained his post of companion to Prince Aribert of Posen, and who Prince Aribert of Posen might be. The millionaire thought he had once heard of Posen, but he wasn't sure. He rather fancied it was one of those small, nondescript German states of which five-sixths of the subjects are palace officials, and the rest charcoal-burners, or innkeepers. Until the meal was nearly over, Rexall said little. Perhaps his thoughts were too busy with Gilles' wink to Mr. Dimmock, but when Isis had been followed by coffee, he decided that it might be as well, in the interests of the hotel, to discover something about his daughter's friend. He never for an instant questioned her right to possess her own friends. He had always left her in the most amazing liberty, relying on her inherited good sense to keep her out of mischief. But, quite apart from the wink, he was struck by Nella's attitude towards Mr. Dimmock, an attitude in which an amiable scorn was blended with an evident desire to propitiate and please. "'Nella tells me, Mr. Dimmock, that you hold a confidential position with Prince Aribert of Posen,' said Rexall. "'You will pardon an American's ignorance, but is Prince Aribert a reigning prince? What, I believe, you call in Europe a prince regnant? "'His Highness is not a reigning prince, nor ever likely to be,' answered Dimmock. "'The Grand Ducal Throne of Posen is occupied by His Highness's nephew, the Grand Duke Eugen.' "'Nephew?' cried Nella with astonishment. "'Why not, dear lady?' "'But Prince Aribert is surely very young.' The prince, by one of those vagaries of chance which occur sometimes in the history of families, is precisely the same age as the Grand Duke.' The late Grand Duke's father was twice married, hence this youthfulness on the part of an uncle. "'How delicious to be the uncle of someone as old as yourself! But I suppose it is no fun for Prince Aribert. I suppose he has to be frightfully respectful and obedient and all that to his nephew. The Grand Duke and my serene master are like brothers. At present, of course, Prince Aribert is nominally heir to the throne— but, as no doubt you are aware, the Grand Duke will shortly marry a near relative of the Emperor's, and should there be a family. Mr. Dimmock stopped and shrugged his straight shoulders. The Grand Duke, he went on, without finishing the last sentence, would much prefer Prince Aribert to be his successor. He really doesn't want to marry. Between ourselves, strictly between ourselves, he regards marriage as rather a bore. But, of course, being a German Grand Duke, he is bound to marry. He owes it to his country." to Posen. "'How large is Posen?' asked Rexall bluntly. "'Father!' Nella interposed, laughing. "'You shouldn't ask such inconvenient questions. 
you ought to have guessed that it isn't etiquette to inquire about the size of a German dukedom.' "'I am sure,' said Dimmock, with a polite smile, "'that the Grand Duke is as much amused as anyone at the size of his territory. I forget the exact acreage, but I remember that once Prince Aribert and myself walked across it and back again in a single day.' Then the Grand Duke cannot travel very far within his own dominions. You may say that the sun does set on his empire. It does, said Dimmock. Unless the weather is cloudy, Nella put in. Is the Grand Duke content always to stay at home? On the contrary, he is a great traveller, much more so than Prince Aribert. I may tell you, what no one knows at present, outside this hotel, that His Royal Highness the Grand Duke, with a small suite, will be here to-morrow. "'In London?' asked Nella. "'Yes.' "'In this hotel?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, how lovely!' "'That is why your humble servant is here tonight, a sort of advance guard.' "'But I understood,' Raxall said, "'that you were, um, attached to Prince Aribert, the uncle.' "'I am. Prince Aribert will also be here. The Grand Duke and the Prince have business about important investments connected with the Grand Duke's marriage settlement.' in the highest quarters, you understand. For so discreet a person, thought Raxel, you are fairly communicative. Then he said aloud, Shall we go out on the terrace? As they crossed the dining-room, Jules stopped Mr. Dimmock and handed him a letter. Just come, sir, by messenger, said Jules. Nella dropped behind for a second with her father. Leave me alone with this boy a little. There's a dear parent, she whispered in his ear. "'I am a mere cipher, an obedient nobody,' Raxel replied, pinching her arm surreptitiously. "'Treat me as such. Use me as you like. I will go and look after my hotel.' And soon afterwards he disappeared. Nella and Mr. Dimmock sat together on the terrace, sipping iced drinks. They made a handsome couple, bowered amid plants which blossomed at the command of a Chelsea wholesale florist. People who passed by remarked privately that from the look of things there was the beginning of a romance in that conversation. Perhaps there was, but a more intimate acquaintance with the character of Nella Rexall would have been necessary in order to predict what precise form that romance would take. Jules himself served the liquids, and at ten o'clock he brought another note. Entreating a thousand pardons, Reginald Dimmock, after he had glanced at the note, excused himself on the plea of urgent business for his serene master, uncle of the Grand Duke of Posen. He asked if he might fetch Mr. Rexall, or escort Miss Rexall to her father. But Miss Rexall said gaily that she felt no need of an escort, and should go to bed. She added that her father and herself always endeavoured to be independent of each other. Just then, Theodore Rexall had found his way once more into Mr. Babylon's private room. Before arriving there, however, he had discovered that in some mysterious manner the news of the change of proprietorship had worked its way down to the lowest strata of the hotel's cosmos. The corridors hummed with it, and even under-servants were to be seen discussing the thing, just as though it mattered to them. "'Have a cigar, Mr. Rexel,' said the urbane Mr. Babylon, "'and the mouthful of the oldest cognac in all Europe.' In a few minutes these two were talking eagerly, rapidly. Felix Babylon was astonished at Rexel's capacity for absorbing the details of hotel management, and as for Rexel, he soon realized that Felix Babylon must be a prince of hotel managers. It had never occurred to Rexel before that to manage an hotel, even a large hotel, could be a specially interesting affair, 
or that it could make any excessive demands upon the brains of the manager, but he came to see that he had underrated the possibilities of an hotel. The business of the Grand Babylon was enormous. It took Rexall, with all his genius for organization, exactly half an hour to master the details of the hotel laundry work, and the laundry work was but one branch of activity amid scores, and not a very large one at that. The machinery of checking supplies, and of establishing a mean ratio between the raw stuff received in the kitchen and the number of meals served in the salle à manger and the private rooms, was very complicated and delicate. When Rexall had grasped it, he at once suggested some improvements, and this led to a long theoretical discussion, and the discussion led to digressions, and then Felix Babylon, in a moment of absent-mindedness, yawned. Rexall looked at the gilt clock on the high mantelpiece. "'Great Scott!' he said. It's three o'clock. Mr. Babylon, accept my apologies for having kept you up to such an absurd hour. I have not spent so pleasant an evening for many years. You have let me ride my hobby to my heart's content. It is I who should apologize. Rexall rose. I should like to ask you one question, said Babylon. Have you ever had anything to do with hotels before? Never, said Rexall. Then you have missed your vocation. You could have been the greatest of all hotel managers. You would have been greater than me, and I am unequalled, though I keep only one hotel, and some men have half a dozen. Mr. Rexall, why have you never run an hotel? Heaven knows, he laughed. But you flatter me, Mr. Babylon. I? Flatter? You do not know me. I flatter no one, except, perhaps now and then, an exceptionally distinguished guest in which case I give suitable instructions as to the bill. Speaking of distinguished guests, I am told that a couple of German princes are coming here tomorrow. That is so. Does one do anything? Does one receive them formally, stand bowing in the entrance hall, or anything of that sort? Not necessarily, not unless one wishes. The modern hotel proprietor is not like an innkeeper of the Middle Ages, and even princes do not expect to see him, unless something should happen to go wrong. As a matter of fact, though the Grand Duke of Posen and Prince Erbert have both honoured me by staying here before, I have never even set eyes on them. You'll find all arrangements have been made. They talked a little longer, and then Rexall said good night. Let me see you to your room. The lifts will be closed, and the place will be deserted. As for myself, I sleep here. And Mr. Babylon pointed to an inner door. No, thanks said Rexall. Let me explore my own hotel unaccompanied. I believe I can discover my room. When he got fairly into the passages, Rexall was not so sure that he could discover his own room. The number was 107, but he had forgotten whether it was on the first or second floor. Travelling in a lift, one is unconscious of floors. He passed several lift doorways, but he could see no glint of a staircase. In all self-respecting hotels, staircases have gone out of fashion and though hotel architects still continue, for old sake's sake, to build staircases, they are tucked away in remote corners where their presence is not likely to offend the eye of a spoiled and cosmopolitan public. The hotel seemed vast, uncanny, deserted. An electric light glowed here and there at long intervals. On the thick carpets, Rexall's thinly shot feet made no sound, and he wandered at ease to and fro, rather amused rather struck by the peculiar senses of night and mystery which had suddenly come over him. He fancied he could hear a thousand snores peacefully descending from the upper realms. At length he found a staircase, 
a very dark and narrow one, and presently he was on the first floor. He soon discovered that the numbers of the rooms on this floor did not get beyond seventy. He encountered another staircase and ascended to the second floor. By the decoration of the walls he recognized this floor as his proper home, and as he strolled through the long corridor he whistled a low meditative whistle of satisfaction. He thought he heard a step in the transverse corridor, and instinctively he obliterated himself in a recess which held a service cabinet and a chair. He did hear a step. Peeping cautiously out, he perceived, what he had not perceived previously, that a piece of white ribbon had been tied round the handle of the door of one of the bedrooms. Then a man came round the corner of the transverse corridor, and Raxall drew back. It was Jules. Jules with his hands in his pockets and a slouch hat over his eyes, but in other respects attired as usual. Raxall, at that instant, remembered with a special vividness what Felix Babylon had said to him at their first interview. He wished he had brought his revolver. He didn't know why he should feel the desirability of a revolver in a London hotel of the most unimpeachable fair fame, but he did feel the desirability of such an instrument of attack and defence. He privately decided that if Jules went past his recess, he would take him by the throat, and in that attitude put a few plain questions to his highly dubious waiter. But Jules had stopped. The millionaire made another cautious observation. Jules, with infinite gentleness, was turning the handle of the door to which the white ribbon was attached. The door slowly yielded, and Jules disappeared within the room. After a brief interval, the night-prowling Jules reappeared, closed the door as softly as he had opened it, removed the ribbon, returned upon his steps, and vanished down the transverse corridor. "'This is quaint,' said Rexall. "'Quaint to a degree!' It occurred to him to look at the number of the room, and he stole towards it. "'Well, I'm damned,' he murmured wonderingly. The number was 111, his daughter's room. He tried to open it, but the door was locked. Rushing to his own room, number 107, he seized one of a pair of revolvers, the kind that are made for millionaires, and followed after Jules down the transverse corridor. At the end of this corridor was a window. The window was open. And Jules was innocently gazing out of the window. Ten silent strides, and Theodore Rexall was upon him. "'One word, my friend,' the millionaire began, carelessly waving the revolver in the air. Jules was indubitably startled, but by an admirable exercise of self-control he recovered possession of his faculties in a second. "'Sir?' said Jules. "'I just want to be informed what the deuce you were doing in number 111 a moment ago.' "'I had been requested to go there.' was the calm response. "'You're a liar, and not a very clever one. That's my daughter's room. Now, out with it, before I decide whether to shoot you or throw you into the street.' "'Excuse me, sir. Number 111 is occupied by a gentleman. I advise you that it is a serious error of judgment to contradict me, my friend. Don't do it again. We will go to the room together.' and you shall prove that the occupant is a gentleman, and not my daughter.' "'Impossible, sir,' said Jules. "'Scarcely that,' said Rexall, and he took Jules by the sleeve. The millionaire knew for a certainty that Nella occupied number 111, for he had examined the room with her, and himself seen that her trunks and her maid and herself had arrived there in safety. "'Now, open the door,' whispered Rexall, when they reached number 111. "'I must knock.' "'That is just what you mustn't do. Open it. 
No doubt you have your pass key. Confronted by the revolver, Jules readily obeyed, yet with a deprecatory gesture as though he would not be responsible for this outrage against the decorum of hotel life. Rexall entered. The room was brilliantly lighted. "'A visitor who insists on seeing you, sir,' said Jules, and fled. Mr. Reginald Dimmock, still in evening dress and smoking a cigarette, rose hurriedly from a table. "'Hello, my dear Mr. Rexall. This is an unexpected uh, pleasure. Where's my daughter? This is her room.' "'Did I catch what you said, Mr. Rexall?' "'I venture to remark that this is Miss Rexall's room.' "'My good sir,' answered Dimmock, "'you must be mad to dream of such a thing.' Only my respect for your daughter prevents me from expelling you forcibly for such an extraordinary suggestion. A small spot halfway down the bridge of the millionaire's nose turned suddenly white. With your permission, he said in a low, calm voice, I will examine the dressing room and the bathroom. Just listen to me a moment, Dimmock urged in a milder tone. I'll listen to you afterwards, my young friend, said Rexall and he proceeded to search the bathroom and the dressing-room without any result whatever. "'Lest my attitude might be open to misconstruction, Mr. Dimmock, I may as well tell you that I have the most perfect confidence in my daughter, who is as well able to take care of herself as any woman I ever met. But since you entered it, there have been one or two rather mysterious occurrences in this hotel. That is all.' Feeling a draught of air on his shoulder, Rexall turned to the window. "'For instance,' he added, I perceive that this window is broken, badly broken, and from the outside. Now, how could that have occurred? If you will kindly hear reason, Mr. Rexall, said Dimmock, in his best diplomatic manner, I will endeavour to explain things to you. I regarded your first question to me when you entered my room as being offensively put, but I now see that you had some justification. He smiled politely. I was passing along this corridor about eleven o'clock, when I found Miss Rexall in a difficulty with the hotel servants. Miss Rexall was retiring to rest in this room when the large stone, which must have been thrown from the embankment, broke the window, as you see. Apart from the discomfort of the broken window, she did not care to remain in the room. She argued that where one stone had come, another might follow. She therefore insisted on her room being changed. The servants said that there was no other room available with a dressing-room and bathroom attached, and your daughter made a point of these matters. I at once offered to exchange apartments with her. She did me the honour to accept my offer. Our respective belongings were moved, and that is all. Miss Rexall is at this moment, I trust, asleep in number 124. Theodore Rexall looked at the young man for a few seconds in silence. There was a faint knock at the door. "'Come in,' said Rexall loudly. Someone pushed open the door, but remained standing on the mat. It was Nella's maid, in a dressing-gown. "'Miss Rexall's compliments, and a thousand excuses, but a book of hers was left on the mantel-shelf in this room. She cannot sleep, and wishes to read.' "'Mr. Dimmock, I tender my apologies. My formal apologies,' said Rexall, when the girl had gone away with the book. "'Good night.' "'Pray don't mention it,' said Dimmock suavely, and bowed him out. Chapter 4 Entrance of the Prince Nevertheless, sundry small things weighed on Rexall's mind. First there was Jules' wink, then there was the ribbon on the door-handle and Jules' visit to number 111, and the broken window, broken from the outside. 
Rexall did not forget that the time was 3 a.m. He slept but little that night, but he was glad that he had bought the Grand Babylon Hotel. It was an acquisition which seemed to promise fun and diversion. The next morning he came across Mr. Babylon early. "'I have emptied my private room of all personal papers,' said Babylon, "'and it is now at your disposal. I propose, if agreeable to yourself, to stay on in the hotel as a guest for the present. We have much to settle with regard to the completion of the purchase, and also there are things which you might want to ask me. Also, to tell the truth, I am not anxious to leave the old place with too much suddenness. It will be a wrench to me.' "'I shall be delighted if you will stay,' said the millionaire. "'But it must be as my guest, not as the guest of the hotel.' "'You are very kind.' As for wishing to consult you, no doubt I shall have need to do so, but I must say that the show seems to run itself. Ah, said Babylon thoughtfully, I have heard of hotels that run themselves. If they do, you may be sure that they obey the laws of gravity and run downwards. You will have your hands full. For example, have you yet heard about Miss Spencer? No, said Rexall. What of her? She has mysteriously vanished during the night and nobody appears to be able to throw any light on the affair. Her room is empty, her box is gone. You'll want someone to take her place, and that someone will not be very easy to get. Hmm, Rexall said, after a pause. Hers is not the only post that falls vacant today. A little later, the millionaire installed himself in the late owner's private room and rang the bell. I want Jules, he said to the page. While waiting for Jules, Rexall considered the question of Miss Spencer's disappearance. "'Good morning, Jules,' was his cheerful greeting, when the imperturbable waiter arrived. "'Good morning, sir. Take a chair. Thank you, sir. "'We have met before this morning, Jules. Yes, sir, at 3 a.m. "'Rather strange about Miss Spencer's departure, is it not?' suggested Rexall. "'It is remarkable, sir.' "'You are aware, of course, that Mr. Babylon has transferred all his interests in this hotel to me?' "'I have been informed to that effect, sir.' "'I suppose you know everything that goes on in the hotel, Jules?' "'As the head-waiter, sir, it is my business to keep a general eye on things.' "'You speak very good English for a foreigner, Jules.' "'For a foreigner, sir. I am an Englishman, a Hertfordshire man, born and bred.' Perhaps my name has misled you, sir. I am only called Jules because the head-waiter of any really high-class hotel must have either a French or an Italian name. I see, said Rexall. I think you must be rather a clever person, Jules. That is not for me to say, sir. How long has the hotel enjoyed the advantage of your services? A little over twenty years. That is a long time to be in one place. Don't you think it's time you got out of the rut? You are still young, and might make a reputation for yourself in another and wider sphere. Rexall looked at the man steadily, and his glance was steadily returned. You aren't satisfied with me, sir? To be frank, Jules, I think, I think you, um, wink too much, and I think that it is regrettable when a head-waiter falls into the habit of taking white ribbons from the handles of bedroom doors at three in the morning. Jules started slightly. I see how it is, sir. You wish me to go, and one pretext, if I may use the term, is as good as another. 
Very well. I can't say that I'm surprised. It sometimes happens that there is incompatibility of temper between a hotel proprietor and his head waiter, and then, unless one of them goes, the hotel is likely to suffer. I will go, Mr. Rexall. In fact, I had already thought of giving notice. The millionaire smiled appreciatively. What wages do you require in lieu of notice? It is my intention that you leave the hotel within an hour. I require no wages in lieu of notice, sir. I would scorn to accept anything. And I will leave the hotel in fifteen minutes. Good day, then. You have my good wishes and my admiration, so long as you keep out of my hotel. Raxel got up. Good day, sir, and thank you. By the way, Gilles, it will be useless for you to apply to any other first-rate European hotel for a post, because I shall take measures which will ensure the rejection of any such application. Without discussing the question whether or not there aren't at least half a dozen hotels in London alone that would jump for joy at the chance of getting me, answered Gilles, I may tell you, sir, that I shall retire from my profession. Really? You will turn your brains to a different channel. No, sir. I shall take rooms in Albemarle Street or German Street, and just be content to be a man about town. I have saved some twenty thousand pounds, a mere trifle, but sufficient for my needs, and I shall now proceed to enjoy it. Pardon me for troubling you with my personal affairs, and good day again. That afternoon, Rexall went with Felix Babylon first to a firm of solicitors in the city, and then to a stockbroker, in order to carry out the practical details of the purchase of the hotel. "'I mean to settle in England,' said Rexall, as they were coming back. "'It is the only country—' And he stopped. "'The only country?' "'The only country where you can invest money and spend money with a feeling of security. In the United States there is nothing worth spending money on, nothing to buy. In France or Italy there is no real security.' "'But surely you are a true American?' questioned Babylon. "'I am a true American,' said Rexall. "'But my father, who began by being a bed-maker at an Oxford college, "'and ultimately made ten million dollars out of iron in Pittsburgh, "'my father took the wise precaution of having me educated in England. "'I had my three years at Oxford, like any son of the upper middle class. "'It did me good. "'It has been worth more to me than many successful speculations. "'It taught me that the English language is different from—' and better than the American language, and that there is something, I haven't yet found out exactly what, in English life that Americans will never get. Why, he added, in the United States we still bribe our judges and our newspapers, and we talk of the eighteenth century as though it was the beginning of the world. Yes, I shall transfer my securities to London. I shall build a house in Park Lane, and I shall buy some immemorial country seat with a history as long as the AT&S Railroad and I shall calmly and gradually settle down. Do you know, I'm rather a good-natured man for a millionaire, and of a social disposition, and yet I haven't six real friends in the whole of New York City. Think of that. And I, said Babylon, have no friends except the friends of my boyhood in Lausanne. I have spent thirty years in England, and gained nothing but a perfect knowledge of the English language, and as much gold as would fill a rather large box." These two plutocrats breathed a simultaneous sigh. "'Talking of gold coin,' said Rexall, "'how much money should you think Jules has contrived to amass while he has been with you?' "'Oh,' Babylon smiled, "'I should not like to guess. 
He has had unique opportunities. Unique opportunities. Should you consider twenty thousand an extraordinary sum under the circumstances? Not at all. Has he been confiding in you? Somewhat. I have dismissed him. You have dismissed him? Why not? There is no reason why not. But I have felt inclined to dismiss him for the past ten years, and never found courage to do it. It was a perfectly simple proceeding, I assure you. Before I had done with him, I rather liked the fellow. Miss Spencer and Jules, both gone in one day, mused Felix Babylon. And no one to take their places, said Rexel, and yet the hotel continues its way. But when Rexel reached the Grand Babylon, he found that Miss Spencer's chair in the bureau was occupied by a stately and imperious girl, dressed becomingly in black. Heavens! Nella! he cried, going to the bureau. What are you doing here? I'm taking Miss Spencer's place. I want to help you with your hotel, Dad. I fancy I shall make an excellent hotel clerk. I've arranged with a Miss Selina Smith, one of the typists in the office, to put me up to all the tips and tricks, and I shall do very well. But look here, Helen Rexall, we shall have the whole of London talking about this thing. The greatest of all American heiresses, a hotel clerk? And I came here for quiet and rest. I suppose it was for the sake of quiet and rest that you bought the hotel, Papa. You would insist on the stake, he retorted. Get out of this, on the instant. Here I am, here to stay, said Nella, and deliberately laughed at her parent. Just then the face of a fair-haired man of about thirty years appeared at the bureau window. He was very well dressed, very aristocratic in his pose, and he seemed rather angry. He looked fixedly at Nella and started back. "'Ach!' he exclaimed. "'You!' "'Yes, your highness, it is indeed I. Father, this is his serene highness, Prince Arabat of Posen, one of our most esteemed customers.' "'You know my name, Fräulein?' the newcomer murmured in German. "'Certainly, Prince,' Nella replied sweetly. "'You were plain Count Steinbock last spring in Paris, doubtless travelling incognito.' "'Silence!' he entreated, with a wave of the hand, and his forehead went as white as paper. End of chapter 3 and 4